Let's pray. Pray to us, O Lord, that we might hear your word faithfully, understand it clearly and obey it joyfully. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The pastoral epistles, as distinct from the general epistles, are written to individuals such as Timothy and Titus and Philemon, rather than to the whole church. And as a consequence, they're often very instructional and very prescriptive. Now, at first, this might seem problematic because we certainly don't like being told how to live our lives. And we can't help thinking that pastoral issues 2,000 years ago on the Isle of Crete, well, they couldn't possibly be the same as today. But the reality is that the instructions given by Paul are really very helpful because we don't have to wonder what it means to live a life of godliness and grace. We're told specifically what that means and what it looks like. And the instructions are not generic. There's no one-size-fits-all. The only governing criteria that underlies behaviour is to honour God and the Gospel. So in verse 5 we read, this is chapter 2, behaviour should be such that no one will malign the word of God. And in verse 10, behaviour should be such that in every way you'll make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Paul's rightly concerned that our behaviour is not only consistent with proclamation, but that God is also glorified in how we live our lives. So specifically in verse 2, Paul's instruction to older men is that they be temperate and self-controlled. There should be no place for excess in a man's life. He shouldn't eat too much or drink too much or even work too much. Keeping your life in balance is often the hardest thing for a man to do. And I haven't found it any easier as I get older. Men are also to live a life worthy of respect. Now, respect's important to a man. Men do want to be loved, but only by God, their wife and their children. Other than that, they can take it or leave it. But what men really desire is to be respected. You don't have to love them. You don't even have to like them but they do want you to respect them. They would much rather be considered honest than neat. They would much rather be considered strong and hard-working than sweet and kind. More than anything else, men want to be respected, and yet, despite the inherent respect that should be afforded older men, Paul says that they should live lives that are worthy of respect. From a Christian perspective, that's a life that's sound, in faith and love and endurance. Older men should have a faith that's rock solid, a faith that's constantly been tried and tested and found to be strong, a faith built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, a faith built upon Jesus Christ himself. Believe it or not, others will look to older men when their own faith is challenged. And they want to be able to say, you know, if he can still remain faithful after many years of hardship and disappointment, then that gives me a lot of encouragement. Older Christian men should be sound in love. Of all men, they should know that ultimately love means sacrifice. It means putting the interests of the gospel, your wife, your children, 
and your community above your own personal desires. Now, enlisting the responsibilities of older men to love others, the order is not random. Our first priority has to be God and the Gospel. And if we think that family should come first, then we're simply mistaken. Anything that we put ahead of God becomes idolatrous. Put God first, and he will honour your family. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all else will be added to you. And though I speak of family, I make a distinction between your wife and your children. Though they seem to be amorphous, they're not. Your wife must come before your children. Your commitment to care for and love your wife is a covenant that you've made before God. When you promise to honour your wife above all others, well, that includes your children. But loving your children, well, that's pretty easy because it's instinctual. Loving your wife can be a lot harder. And that's why it's a promise that we make. That's why it's a covenant that we keep. The third characteristic of a godly Christian man is endurance. He never gives up on God and the gospel. He never gives up on his wife and his family. And one of the benefits of getting older is that half the sins you might be tempted to commit, you're actually either too tired or too slow for them ever to happen. <laughs> there is one sin, however, that old men in particular are prone to, and that's grumpiness. It's a problem that afflicts most of us at some time. But if it endures and grows, it'll become part of our character. And far from being endearing, it actually undermines everything else that's good in our life. And it does nothing to make the teaching of God our Saviour in any way attractive. So much for older men. What Paul says about them applies equally to older women. But, but they're not the same. If temperance is what should characterise older men, it's reverence that should characterise older women. If men, as they age, are prone to being grumpy about anything and everything, then older women are just as prone to being gossipy about anyone and everyone. Such gossip is what Paul means in verse 3, when he describes some of the older women as slanderous. It's the Greek word diabolos means to be a false accuser, and from it we get the word diabolical. Like grumpiness, there's nothing pretty or attractive about gossip. Older women in Crete were also prone to drinking too much wine. Now I'm pretty sure that this was a local problem at the time, and no inference can be drawn to implicate older Christian women in general. I hope not. So Paul makes it clear what reverence is not. But he also speaks of what reverence will look like. In practice, it means to teach what is good. Just as older men are a model for younger men on what love and faithfulness and endurance looks like, so too older women should be encouraging and urging younger women to be making wise decisions. And the decisions that young women need to make are universally applicable across time and culture. Some things never change, 
And Paul lists those concerns in verses 4 and 5. They're about loving husbands and children, about being self-controlled and pure, busy at home and kind, being subject to the husbands. And the reason given for all of this is so that no one will malign the word of God. The word of God and his honour is what's at stake. In chapter 1, Paul's telling the elders to hold fast to the word of truth. Here in chapter 2, he's telling different groups within the congregation how to live out that word of truth. Now, if we live our lives according to our personal preferences and according to the norms of our 21st century Western culture, then at times we will inevitably clash with the claims of Christianity. And that's a choice that we have to make. So, for example, if younger women are to make wise decisions about loving their husbands and their children, it will mean putting your husband before your children. Just as the husband has promised to love you first and foremost, you've made the same promise to him. And you can't love your husband as you would love your very dearest girlfriend. You see, he doesn't care if you like his new shirt. He doesn't care if you like the way he combs his hair, if he has any. He really wants to know if you take seriously what he says. Will you still love him and honour him before others, even when he fails? And he will. Are you prepared to follow him wherever he's sure that God is leading? Are you confident that the worst case scenario is that God will close one door so that he might open another? Are you prepared to be busy at home? By all means, go out to work, visit your friends, be doing good in the community, but make sure your decisions are wise. Make sure that loving God, your husband and your children come first. Don't let busyness push God to the margins of your life. Don't choose a big mortgage if it forces you into the workplace against your better judgement. Don't give up on an orderly household simply because of drudgery. Don't think your talents are wasted at home and that success in the world is the only valid measure of your worth. Don't subcontract the nurture of your children to others. Certainly teachers can educate them, doctors can heal them, daycare centres can tend them, but there are some things that only a mother can do. Bonding with and nurturing a young child was not only critical, it takes time and lots of it. Your child's life is only a small window in your own. Don't miss it because of busyness and disordered priorities. Finally, says Paul, Christian women should be subject to their husbands. And the word to be subject is the same word that Paul uses when he says to the Ephesians, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The word means to consent to place yourself under the authority of your husband. Your husband has a God-given authority and a responsibility to love you and to care for you. 
to always be willing to sacrifice himself for your sake and always to act in your best interests. Now such authority doesn't mean that he'll always get it right or even do it well. And it certainly doesn't guarantee that his actions are always motivated by self-sacrificing love for you. But the authority of your husband does have a context and it does have boundaries. And if the context and the boundaries are in place, then the responsibility of the Christian wife is to place herself under that authority. The boundaries of authority ensure that a husband has absolutely no right to demand his wife's obedience. Love doesn't work like that. The boundaries also ensure that a wife has no right to expect that her husband follows her lead. The responsibilities between a husband and wife are complementary. They are not egalitarian. Husbands and wives have an equal dignity and a shared responsibility, but their roles are neither the same or interchangeable. As for young men, Paul sums them up pretty well in verse 6. He says that above all they need to be self-controlled. Titus is a young man and he asks, and Paul asks him to be an example to other young men, especially when he teaches. So when he teaches, he's to teach with integrity. He's to teach the whole truth and not to be faint on the hard stuff. His teaching is to have a seriousness about it. The word of God shouldn't be dour, but nor is it a joke. Sound teaching and doctrine is encouraging, but it's also correcting. And the final group that Paul addresses is slaves. Whenever you hear the word slaves, it's problematic. And if I ask you what images do you have of slavery, the most common point of reference will be Negro slaves working on the cotton fields in the southern states of America. Such slaves were kidnapped and stolen from their homes. They were selected on the basis of a supposed inferiority of race. They were given subhuman status and no prospect of redemption. But when the New Testament speaks of slavery, none of those conditions apply. Slaves in the first century Roman world were usually captives of war. They weren't chosen on the basis of race, nor were they considered to be anything less than fully human. They're often given positions of authority and responsibility and trust, and they could earn money to buy their freedom. Nor was slavery a lifelong condition most slaves were released after a period of 10, ten years. In some ways, first century slavery is not very different to bonded employment. My sister, for example, in exchange for a Commonwealth scholarship and training at Teachers College, she was bonded three years to work in the Australian Capital Territories. And this meant that she had no choice but to teach in government schools in the Northern Territory and the ACT. In some ways, that's what slavery was like in the first century. And when the New Testament talks about slavery, it doesn't condemn it directly, but nor does it endorse it unreservedly. What the New Testament does is that it lays down the basis for relationships between servants and masters. 
that guarantees the institution will die a sure and a natural death. And that's what happened. It was not the humanists or the secularists that led the charge to abolish slavery. It was the Quakers and the Evangelical Christians. Paul is not dealing with the question of what should we do about the institution of slavery. He's dealing with the question of how slaves and masters should relate to one another in such a way as to make the teaching of God their saviour attractive to others. Have a look from verse 9. Christian slaves are to place themselves under the authority of their masters because they're now under a higher authority. This meant they have to stop stealing, be respectful, work hard because their true master is God. But it also meant that their life had purpose and hope because they belong to another master, the God of redemption and salvation. So though none of us are slaves or slave masters, we all have work to do and all of us have a master. Even if we're self-employed, we're still under the authority of God. And work, well, it's not a curse. It's not something to be avoided. It certainly needs to be redeemed, but not spurned. We're made to work and we can only be fulfilled when we have something meaningful to do. What you think of your work will ultimately depend on who you think you're working for. If that's God, then you'll not only be a better worker, but you'll be a happier one. So there it is. Clear instruction for older men and women, for younger men and women, and for workers and employers. And I can't think of anyone except children that don't fit into at least one of those categories. But Paul's never satisfied to say, well, there it is, that's how you should live. See you next week. He always wants to establish what he says in a solid theology. He always wants to bring all that he says back to the gospel. So why should we conduct ourselves with godliness and grace? Why should we want to honour the word of God? But why do we want to make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive? Now, of course, you might believe that living a life of godliness and obedience to God is important. You might say, well, how else are we going to get to heaven? If we're going to get to heaven, then we have to earn that right. We have to merit our position in the kingdom of God. That's the way life is, and religion is no different. And if you did think that, then in one sense, I might agree with you. Life and religion is like that. But that's not the message of the Gospel. The message of the Gospel says that we're far more sinful than we think we are. So we can't possibly work our way into heaven. And the message of the Gospel is also that God is far more merciful than we could ever hope Him to be. And apart from His mercy and grace, then we're without hope. So it's to the gospel that Paul appeals when he gives his reason to live a life of godliness. And the first reason he gives us is in verse 11. It's because the grace of God that brings salvation, well, it's appeared to and it's available to everyone. But God is no respecter of persons. He has no favourites. There are no degrees of worth in God's eyes. When he brings salvation, it's offered to everyone without exception. When he brings salvation, it's offered by grace and grace alone. We can't earn that. 
all we can do is say thank you and bow down in worship before God our Saviour. The reason that we're willing to submit ourselves under the authority of another, be it an elder, a husband or wife or an employer, is that we know that all of us already are equally under the authority of God and his word. But all of us are equally as sinful, yet equally loved by God and saved by grace. The second reason we have to live a life of godliness is in verse 13. It's because we have a blessed hope. We know that as difficult as this life can get, this is not our future. But we know that as wonderful as this life can be, it's only a faint glimmer of the joy that stands before us. Our blessed hope is the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. When he comes, then all our suffering and sorrows will cease. All our joys will be complete. The reason we endure, the reason we hold on to our faith, the reason we suffer for the sake of the gospel, is because we're confident that all suffering has a purpose and a conclusion beyond death. When Christ returns, we shall find our hope in him. God shall come down from heaven and dwell with us. We shall be his people and he shall be our God. This is our reason to live a life now of godliness and grace. But there's one final reason why we should live our lives to honour God, and it's in verse 14. Because God has given himself for us to redeem us, the only appropriate response is for us to give ourselves to him. We belong to him. He's paid the price for our redemption. He longs to call us his people and he longs for us to call him our God, or more specifically, our Father. He's redeemed us from wickedness. He's made us pure. He's made us for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. I can't think of a better reason to want to live a life that honours God. What do you think? Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for offering us grace in this life, hope for eternal life, and calling us to be a people set apart to you through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled lives, upright and godly in this present age. May we be a people that are your very own, eager to do what's good, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ.